Chapter 1 of The Clue of the Gold Coin by Helen Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Clue of the Gold Coin by Helen Wells. Chapter 1 Sunshine Assignment. Swirls of heavy snowflakes, driven by a brisk wind that whistled across the vast expanse of concrete runways that is New York City's Idlewild Airport, dashed against the big picture window in the personnel lounge and spiraled back into the murky whiteness of the winter morning. Inside the comfortable room, four girls, all dressed in the trim blue uniform of Federal Airlines stewardesses, sat in soft leather armchairs. Of all the luck, one of the girls, a tall brunette, grinned as she shook her head in mock despair. Here it is, the middle of the worst winter we've had in years, and what do I draw as my new assignment? New York to Chicago, the two coldest towns in the world. And you too, you lucky kids, get the Florida run. Vicky Barr tucked a strand of her ash blonde hair in place, and her laugh tinkled like Chinese chimes stirred by a gentle breeze. Your trouble, Sue, she said, is that you don't wish on stars. Now the other night, flying down from Boston, I looked out the window and there was Venus hanging up in the sky as bright and pretty as you please. So I just said, Starlight, star bright, first star I've seen tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, get the wish I wish tonight. Oh, now go away. No, I really mean it, I said. I wish I am assigned to the Florida run. And the next morning, the chief stewardess called me into her office and told me that my new assignment was New York to Tampa. Sue chuckled. Vicky, you little vixen. I don't know whether to believe you or not. But just the same, I envy you. When I think of Chicago in this weather, she shuddered. Brrr, and I do mean brrr. I envy you, one of the other girls spoke up. You kids are really going to have fun. I was reading the other day about the big pirate carnival they have every year about this time down in Tampa. It's supposed to be as gay and giddy as the New Orleans Mardi Gras. That's the Gasparilla Pirate Festival. The fourth girl, Vicky's co-stewardess, volunteered. Kathy Soames was a tall, slender girl about Vicky's own age, with flaming red hair that contrasted sharply with the pale blue of her perky cap. And you're right, Vicky and I are going to have buckets of fun. She winked at her flight partner and grinned. By the way, Vicky... I wonder what big things are happening out in Chicago this winter. Don't rub it in, Sue said. She glanced at the pattern of snow swirling up against the wide window. If this keeps up, it doesn't look as if any of us will get away from New York. Maybe not you, Vicky replied. But we go out on a schedule. I checked with operations as I came in. And south of Washington, there is not a snow cloud in the sky. Remember... It's the weather at landing, not at takeoff, that counts. At that moment, Johnny Baker, co-pilot on Vicky's flight, stuck his handsome crew-cut blonde head in the door. 
Let's go, kids. No day off for you two, he said with a wide grin. We're taking off on the nose. Meet you in five minutes at gate five. Vicky and Kathy picked up their flight bags and top coats and headed for the door that Johnny had closed after him. Give our love to the ice on Lake Michigan, Kathy said over her shoulder. And don't slip on the ice when you walk away from your ship, Vicky added with a smile. Get out, Sue said, before we throw you out. And oh, yes, she added, a smile twinkling in her eyes. Give our best to that pirate fellow. Four hours later, the big DC-6B four-engine plane put up its port wing as the pilot banged to swing into his landing pattern. Vicky, strapped in the stewardess's jump seat for the landing, looked out the window at the tropical vista spread all around her. To her left, as the pilot banked, the window was filled with bright blue sky, cloudless except for a few white wisps that floated high overhead. Through the window across the aisle, she could look down on the sand of the beaches, gleaming golden in the early afternoon sun, the vivid aquamarine blue of the waters of the gulf, and the crisp green of the lawns and gardens that surrounded the glistening white houses. Then the plane straightened, passed over a busy street of the old city, over the scattered houses in the suburbs, and at last the hangars and runways of Tampa International Airport swept into view over the landing edge of the wing. The big plane shuddered as Captain March, the senior pilot, lowered his wing flaps to check the landing speed. Then the runway rushed up to meet the ship and there was a shrill whine as the tires hit the concrete strip. In her natural element, the air, the huge plane was as effortless and graceful in flight as a soaring gull. But on the ground, her wings vibrated and seemed to droop and she shook all over like some great, tired, clumsy beast as she lumbered forward to the unloading gate. The instant she felt the ship land and steady on its taxing course, Vicky unfastened her seatbelt and got to her feet, ready to help her passengers collect their things and get ready to disembark. Ten minutes later, she and Kathy were standing in the open plane doorway, saying goodbye to the last of them. Three small children, who, with their mother, had been making their first trip by air. The little girls had been fascinated by the flight and Vicky had spent all of her spare minutes, which on a short flight like this one and with hot lunches to be served to 80 passengers were very few, answering their eager questions. Then rapidly, the two stewardesses checked through the big cabin for any belongings their passengers might have left behind. I hope our hotel is on the beach. Kathy said, stopping for a moment to gaze out at the warm sunshine. I can't wait to start working on a Florida tan. I'm staying with Louis Curtin family, Vicky said, at least for the first few trips. Louis Curtin? She was in my class at the University of Illinois, Vicky explained. Her family lives down here. When I wrote that I was going to be on the Tampa run, she phoned me the minute she got the letter and insisted that I absolutely must stay with them on my layovers. It's nice to have friends, Kathy sighed. Much better than a hotel room. Federal, like all other airlines, provided hotel accommodations for their crews when they were away from home. In New York, Vicky shared an apartment with several other Federal Airlines stewardesses. That reminds me, I have another friend in Tampa, 
Vicky said. I'll have to look him up. Ah, Kathy said, brightening. Do I smell romance in the air? Vicky laughed. I hate to disappoint you, Kathy, but Joey Watson is a boy who works here in the Federal Warehouse. He's an orphan, poor kid, a cousin of Bill Avery, the pilot who taught me to fly. Kathy's eyes widened. To fly? Don't tell me you are a pilot as well as a stewardess. I've had my private license for two years, Vicky smiled. But I don't have a chance to get in much flying time when I'm in New York. Anyway, she went on, Joey was dying to learn to fly. And Bill asked me if I'd mind putting in a few words for him with Federal's personnel department. There happened to be an opening here and Joey got the job. So you see, there goes your romance. I'm afraid Joey thinks of me more as a mother. Kathy surveyed Vicky's slim, trim figure, looking her up and down with an expression of exaggerated appraisal on her face. You don't look like the mother type to me, gal. All right, Vicky chuckled. Make it big sister if that suits you better. At that moment, the door to the flight deck opened and Captain March entered the main cabin, followed by Johnny Baker, the co-pilot. The captain had a leather briefcase tucked under his arm and both men carried blue canvas overnight bags stamped with the name and insignia of the airline. How did it go, girls? The captain asked. Smooth as silk, Vicky answered. Everybody seemed to enjoy themselves and one or two went out of their way to say so. Fine, the captain said briskly. That's good. Now let's check in and get out to the hotel. I could use a swim. As the four crew members walked from the plane to Federal's operations office in the airport building, Vicky explained to Captain March about her invitation to stay with the curtains. And oh yes, she continued, a young friend of mine works as a cargo handler in the freight warehouse. She told the captain briefly about Joey Watson and how she had helped get him his job. Do you suppose it will be all right if I go over and say hello? I don't see why not, the captain replied. Just be sure to check with the foreman first. They don't like to have unauthorized personnel wandering around. A few minutes after they had made their routine check-in, Vicky said goodbye to her fellow crew members and strolled leisurely in the direction of the big warehouse building. A heavy-set man lounged in the warehouse doorway, holding a half-consumed bottle of coke in his hand. He looked quizzically at Vicky as she approached. Can you please tell me where I can find the foreman? Vicky asked politely. You're talking to him, the man said. His square-cut face was expressionless, neither friendly nor unfriendly. I'd like to see Joey Watson for a minute. Is he on duty this afternoon? Yep. You a friend of his? Vicky put on her prettiest smile. Well, sort of, she said. I haven't seen him for some time, and if I may, I'd like to say hello. Just a second, the foreman said. I'll go get him. He turned and disappeared into the huge building. Vicky looked in through the open door. Piles of boxes, cartons and bulky sacks stood stacked like islands on the big expanse of floor. Cargo handlers were busy sorting these, loading some on small motor carts and unloading others that had just been taken off incoming planes. Backed up at a long platform that ran the length of the opposite side of the building were half a dozen trucks waiting to pick up the cargo for local delivery. Other workmen weighed outgoing boxes and bales and nailed cartons up more securely. The whole place had an air of quiet efficiency. A tall, young figure, 
dashed out of the dimness of the big room and ran up to Vicky. A big smile spread all across his eager face. Miss Vicky, he cried breathlessly, holding out his hand. I never expected to see you here. Hi, Joey, Vicky greeted him. She took his outstretched hand and he pumped hers in a warm but excited handshake. How's the job going? Swell, Miss Vicky, just swell. Joey Watson was 18, tall, thin, and with long arms that dangled awkwardly from his skinny shoulders. As he stood grinning contagiously, he reminded Vicky of a friendly, energetic, oversized puppy. She couldn't help grinning back at him. Well, Vicky asked, are there enough airplanes around here to suit you? There sure are. I'd have taken any kind of job, even sweeping the place out just to be around planes. And I can't thank you enough for getting this one for me. Just then the dour foreman appeared. Oh, Van, Joey said eagerly, I want you to meet Miss Vicky Barr. She's a federal stewardess and, he added, his eyes shining, a pilot. Van mumbled an acknowledgement of the introduction. Don't take too long a break, boy, he said to Joey. Ed will need you on his car to meet the 350 flight from Dallas. The foreman nodded briskly to Vicky and walked off. Vicky looked after his wooden, uniformed figure. Was he naturally chilly or just a nose-to-the-grindstone type? Oh well, it really didn't matter. She'd probably never see him again. She turned her attention back to Joey. I'm afraid I'm not much of a pilot, she smiled. Whatever you may think. Joey's face wrinkled up in a grin. Anyone who can fly is pretty big in my book. He pointed to an area of concrete strip between the warehouse and a service hangar next door. See that beach sitting over there? A small twin-engine beechcraft stood on the strip. The cowling had been removed from one of her engine nacelles and a man stood on a stepladder tinkering with the motor. That's Steve Miller, Joey said. He's a charter pilot here at the field and he's promised to teach me to fly. Why, that's wonderful, Vicky exclaimed, her eyes twinkling with pleasure. She knew that being able to fly was the most important thing in the boy's life. Steve's the best, Joey went on enthusiastically. So is Van Lasher. He's the fellow I introduced you to just now. Gosh, everybody around this airport is pretty swell. You just naturally like everybody that has anything to do with airplanes, don't you, Joey? I sure do, he admitted. Say, Miss Vicky, how long did it take you to solo? Were you nervous the first time? Vicky smiled. See here, young man, if we start talking flying, you'll never get back to work. I guess you're right, the boy said, laughing. It wouldn't do to lose this job, now that I'm getting ready to be a flyboy for real. Vicky said goodbye and promised to look Joey up again. Then she walked back to the airport building. Even though it had become a common everyday sight to her, an airport waiting room never failed to fascinate Vicky. And this one at Tampa was particularly interesting. Passengers from incoming planes carried heavy coats that they had worn when they had left the northern winter weather. Sometimes friends, tanned and wearing gay-colored sports clothes, were waiting to greet them. Through the big picture window, she could see the air taxis waiting at one end of the field. 
Anyone who wished to fly across Tampa Bay to Clearwater or St. Petersburg or across the Caribbean to Cuba or Mexico could charter a plane like the one Joey's instructor, Steve Miller, flew. Everything seemed so easygoing and carefree here, Vicky thought, in this sun-kissed land where the breeze was scented with the perfume of flowers. She stopped at the Federal Reservations counter where she had left her bag, picked it up, and then went out the building's main entrance to look for a taxi. Twenty minutes later, the taxi pulled up at Curtin's home and Vicky, carrying her bag and top coat, stepped out. She stopped for a moment after she had paid her fare to look at the dignified old house. It was red brick, old-fashioned and comfortable looking, surrounded by a close-clipped lawn and rambling flower gardens. Two tall palm trees flanked it on either side. She opened the iron gate and walked down a flagstone path to the front door. Before she could ring the bell, the door flew open and there stood Louise, looking more grown up than Vicky remembered her, with her hair done up in a chignon and a big smile of welcome on her beautiful, delicately tanned face. Louise had written that she was doing social work, but Vicky found it hard to believe that this lovely, vivacious girl could confine her energies to anything so unglamorous. Vicky, how wonderful to see you again. Louise hugged her and then stepped back and appraised her. You've changed. Vicky laughed. It's pretty wonderful to see you too. But you don't have to sound so accusing. You've changed yourself. You're so poised now, Vicky, and so thrashic in that lovely blue uniform. I remember you used to be shy. Still shy sometimes and I'm very delighted to be at your house. You were darling to ask me, are you actually a social worker these days? You are Southern Belle? Only a volunteer, whenever the agency needs me, but tell me. A tall, slim figure ran lightly down a broad staircase at the end of the entrance hall. That's enough of this college reunion stuff, Louise. Introduce your kid sister. Louise laughed, apologized, and introduced Nina. Nina managed to tell Vicky all in one breath that she was only a year younger than Louise, had left college to take a fashion job in a Tampa dress shop and thought flight stewardesses have the most glamorous job in the world. When Vicky said her job involved some serious know-how about aviation and practical nursing and dealing with people in general and was not entirely glamorous, Nina refused to believe it. Sheer glamour, she insisted even better than being an actress. I am sure of it. Louise looked amused and suggested that they had better invite their guest into the house. The girls showed Vicky to the guest room upstairs and waited, chattering about the plans they had made for her while she unpacked the few things she brought with her and changed from her flight uniform into bright cotton afternoon dress. Better bring more dresses on your next flight, Nina warned. You'll need them for parties and going out. They went back downstairs to the living room, which in late afternoon was filled with cool shadows and perfumed with the fresh scent of flowers wafted in through the open windows. I'll fix us something cool to drink, Nina said and disappeared. A few minutes later, she appeared with a tall frosty pitcher of lemonade and three glasses on a tray. What does your sister do, Vicky? Nina wanted to know. College, career, romance. Vicky explained that Ginny was still in high school and that her plans for the future kept changing from day to day as some new idea took her fancy. 
Louise wanted to hear news about the castle, the big rambling home of Vicky's family in Fairview, Illinois, which got its name from the fact that its tower and balcony really did resemble a castle, in which Louise had visited as often as she could when she and Vicky were classmates at State University. She asked about Mrs. Barr's rock garden, Freckles the Barr Spaniel, and what news Professor Barr brought home from the university. Vicky answered the torrent of questions as best she could, for it had been several weeks since she had been home. The three girls chattered on and on without noticing the time and were surprised when a cheerful male voice broke into their conversation. Well, where is she? Where's the little flyer? A gray-haired man of medium height stood in the doorway to the room. He was dressed in a dark blue business suit and wore heavy horn-rimmed glasses. Dad! Louise cried, jumping up. Vicky got to her feet and went forward, smiling, to take Mr. Curtin's outstretched hand. He was just the sort of father she'd expected Louise to have, a substantial businessman, soft-spoken, cheerful, cordial, good-humored. The smile he gave Vicky in return was the very essence of Southern hospitality. It's nice of you to take in a stranger, Vicky said. You won't be a stranger in Tampa very long, Vicky, Mr. Curtin answered. We'll see to that, won't we, girls? He sat down and lighted a cigarette. You came down at just the right time, he said, exhaling a spiral of smoke that drifted upward and hung in a golden ray of late afternoon sunlight which slanted in through a window. You will be here for the Gasparilla Pirate Festival. Dad's on the committee, Nina said excitedly. He's going to be a pirate, and Luis and I are going to be senoritas. Vicky smiled mischievously. I'm afraid you don't look like a pirate to me, Mr. Curtin. You just wait until you see me in a big black beard, a patch over one eye, and a bandana tied around my head. Maybe you'll change your mind. Dad looks simply ferocious, Louis grinned. Why, he even frightens me. The four were talking and laughing gaily when the housekeeper came in to announce dinner. Mrs. Tucker was a large, comfortable-looking woman with gray hair rolled into a knot on top of her head and wearing a crispy, starched white dress. They followed her into the dining room and seated themselves at the table. I'm sorry mother isn't here to meet you, Vicky, Louise said, as the housekeeper served the steaming dishes of food. But she got a wire the other day saying that grandma was ill, and she flew out to Oregon to see her. Vicky will meet her when she returns, Mr. Curtin said. For I trust, young lady, he said to Vicky, that you will consider this your home whenever you are in Tampa. The pleasant conversation continued as they leisurely ate the delicious dinner. Inevitably, it returned to the coming festival. One of the stewardesses were talking about it before we left New York, Vicky said. She said it was a sort of Mardi Gras, but that's about all I know. It's an old tradition with us, Mr. Curtin explained. I think you might be interested in how it all started. I certainly would, Vicky answered. It sounds intriguing. Well, about 200 years ago, in 1783 to be exact, an officer in the Spanish Navy named Jose Gaspar mutinied and seized his warship, the Florida Blanca. Then he turned pirate, changed his name to Gasparilla, meaning Little Gaspar, 
and began to prey on the merchant ships of all nations. He made his headquarters in the islands around Tampa Bay, and whenever a merchantman came by, he rushed out, captured it, killed the crew, stole the cargo, and then burned the ship. And this cutthroat is the patron rogue of Tampa, Nina put in. Louise thinks it's too disgraceful. Oh, really, Nina? I never said quite that. Mr. Curtin laughed as he went on with the story. Be that as it may, old Gasparilla's luck held out for 38 years. Then one day in 1821, he made a fatal mistake. He pounced on a lone brig, which he thought was an unarmed merchantman, but it turned out to be an American warship, the USS Enterprise, and Gasparilla's goose was cooked. Within minutes, his ship was a mass of flames. So the Navy finally captured him. Not Gasparilla. The old devil wrapped a heavy iron chain around his waist and leaped into the sea, still brandishing his cutlass. And now, Daddy is going to be a lovely, bloodthirsty pirate too, Nina said impishly. Mr. Curtin smiled. I'd better tell Vicky the rest of the story before she thinks we're all crazy down here. You see, he continued, since Gasparilla had made Tampa Bay his headquarters, we decided to use him as an excuse for a midwinter festival and a week of fun. A group of Tampa businessmen formed an organization called the Ye Mystic Crewy. You spell Crewy with the capital K and an E on the end. And aside from festival week, we are as sedate as any Rotary Club. You're not very sedate when you capture Tampa, Louise said. No, Mr. Curtin admitted with a grin. I'm afraid that for that particular week, we turned into little boys again playing pirate. A few years ago, we raised the money to build a full-rigged sailing ship, an exact replica of Gasparilla's Florida Blanca. On Monday morning, this year it will be February 10th, we all dress up in pirate costumes, sail the Jose Gasparilla up the bay and capture Tampa. Then, for the rest of the week, everybody has fun, dancing in the streets, balls, torchlight parades. Then, on Saturday, we sail away and give Tampa a chance to catch its breath till next year. Vicky's eyes were shining with excitement as Louis's father finished his story. It does sound like fun. I just can't wait. Nina and I are going to ride on one of the floats in the big torchlight parade. Louis said, her own eyes sparkling. We'll be all dressed up like Spanish senoritas in mantillas, shawls and red dresses. And red roses clutched in our pearly teeth, Nina insisted. Why can't I be a senorita too, Vicky demanded. That is, and her face fell at the thought that she might miss the fun, if we are not in New York that day. Whoever heard of a blonde, blue-eyed senorita? Mr. Curtin teased. I have, Nina said. In the north of Spain, Dad, Louise interrupted. Tell Vicky about the old Spanish doubloons. Mr. Curtin explained that a collection of ancient gold coins gathered together from all over the world was currently on display at a museum in New York. And since pirates and gold coins seem to go hand in hand, he continued. We thought it would be an added attraction for the festival if we could put them on display here in the Royal Palms Hall 
during Gasparilla week. So I wrote New York, and it turned out we were in luck. The exhibit is scheduled to close in New York just a few days before our festival opens, and they agreed to let us exhibit them. So at least one part of Gasparilla Festival will be authentic this year. Ye mystic crew may be counterfeit pirates, but those gold coins will be the real thing. Very real indeed. The table talk drifted to other subjects. The Florida beaches, the Florida sun, Vicky's and Louis's school days at the State University, and after dinner, Vicky and the two curtain girls took a short walk down the moonlit palm-lined streets. Later, when Vicky had said goodnight and slipped into bed, she realized that the excitement of the day, seeing a romantic new city and meeting an old friend, had made her pleasantly tired. She dropped off to sleep almost as soon as her blonde hair touched the cool linen pillow, and her dreams were filled with visions of pirate ships and pirate gold. End of chapter 1